Hi, and welcome to the Newberry Chronicles, a podcast in which two readers go through each and every Newberry Medal winner, and then we talk about it. I'm Michael. And I'm Rebecca. And this week, it's not a week, but in this time, uh, we are talking about the 1968 Newberry Medal winner um, from the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, uh, which is written by E.L. Konigsberg. Is that how you Sounds pronounce it? Sounds good word? to me. Okay. Well, um, yeah. So before we start, um, just a few reminders. Don't forget that um, we have an email address. So if you're into, you know, cutting-edge technology from 25 years ago, um, you can email us at newberrychronicles at gmail.com. Um, and we'd love to hear from you. If uh, you have other thoughts... Um, we're not on any on any socials or anything, so you have to do email like it's 1998. Um, yeah, that's that's about it. Um, Rebecca, it's your turn to bring us up to speed on the author of this novel. Yes. So E.L. Konigsberg was born on February 10th, 1930, in New York City. Her parents were Jewish Jewish immigrants, um, but she grew up in small Pennsylvania towns um, with her parents. Maybe Maple Hill. Maybe. And her two sisters. Um, She really loved reading as a kid. She graduated valedictorian from her high school, but she had no guidance counselor, did not know what scholarships were or how to get them. So she worked as a bookkeeper at a meat plant to raise money for college, and that's where she met her husband, David, who was the brother of one of the owners. She went to the Carnegie Institute of Technology in Pittsburgh, which today is the Carnegie Mellon University. She majored Mm. in chemistry there. She became the first person in her family to earn a degree. And then she went to graduate school, also for chemistry, at the University of Pittsburgh. And then she moved with her husband, David, to Jacksonville, Florida. She worked as a science teacher at the Bartram School for Girls, until 1955. She was also the mother of three children, Paul, Laurie, and Ross. She, her family um, later moved to Port Chester in New York, and um, that's when she started writing in the mornings when her third child started school. Was she not teaching anymore at that she time? She was not. My, from the Wikipedia article, it seemed like she stopped teaching when she had kids, and then they moved to the suburbs in New York. But as we mentioned before recording, the Wikipedia article was poorly cited. It so was. These well, might it was all be cited. lies. It was cited. It just didn't have links to this afterward that she wrote in the 35th anniversary of the book that I wanted to read. So, anyway... Um, so her first published book was Jennifer Hecate Macbeth, William McKinley, and Me, Elizabeth. That is the whole title of the book. And her second was from the mix-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. She wrote both of these. In, um, these were both published in 1967. The first one won the honor in 1968, and the latter won the medal. She is the only person to be the winner and runner-up in the same year. Um, And she just hit the ball out of the park with her first two books, I would say. (laughs) And amazingly, maybe you'll get into this, but she went on to win more Newbery Awards. She did. She did. We are going to talk about that. Um, You might... 
I, I hope I'm not stealing your thunder with this, but she was inspired to write the mix-up files after her children were complaining on a picnic in Yellowstone, and she made a comment that if they ever ran away, they would certainly never consider any place less elegant than the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which was the inspiration for the book, um, as well as some other things Why that you that might talk about. Why would that steal my thunder? Because I didn't know if you were going to talk about it when you talked about the book. I don't know anything about the background of this book. Well, it was in the Wikipedia article. I did not read the Wikipedia <laughs> article. Well, then I'll also say the inspiration for um, Mrs. Frankweiler was the headmistress of the school where she taught. Oh. Also, there was a um, statue, I can't remember the year, that was brought to um, the museum. That the people, Met. Yeah, that there was there was conversation about whether it was a legitimate work of um, Michelangelo or not. So there was uh, like a real historical event that kind of inspired um, the statue that comes into play that you'll talk about with the plot. Anyway, so exciting little bits of trivia. And then in 1996, she wrote The View from Saturday, which also won the medal and made her one of six people to have won the medal twice some of whom we've already talked about here. Elizabeth George Spear was one. Kate Camelo, And then I can't remember others that we... We'll get to them eventually. Yes. So, um, this was just a sweet quote that I wanted to read. Um, one critic said, For five decades, Konigsberg challenged readers by tackling subjects often avoided in children's books. Like running away to museums. Correct. From the undercurrent of hostility that runs through an interracial friendship to the domestic unrest generated by the stirrings of pubescent and parental sexuality, Konigsberg was committed to depicting young people as capable knowers of what goes on in their own minds, homes, and the wider world they inhabit. Bad things happen in her novels when adult characters fail to respect this competence. At the same time, however, Konigsberg emphasizes that all knowledge is perspectival, the particular social position that each of us inhabits shapes what we know and how we come to know it. And then she died on April 19th, 2013 from complications of a stroke. And she was 83 years old. Rip. So that is E.L. Konigsberg. A real polyglot. I was not expecting the whole... Polyglot? What? Like you have multiple... Like, lots of different abilities, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I was not expecting the whole, like, taught chemistry, like, got a master's degree right. in chemistry. And while it seemed like she didn't have a lot of direction over what she wanted to do, she was just going to school to be something. And to like get a degree. Too. Yeah, to get a degree to get something. Like, and I wish that it would have got more into her childhood, and I think in her afterward, maybe she would have talked about this, but it seemed like reading was, there was some quote that about reading being merely tolerated in her home, but there were more important things like chores and other things. So hmm. I feel like that was an escape for her, but, and she, she just always wanted to get out. Like she grew up in a fairly poor home and then her kids, um, you know, grew up in the suburbs. And so she like reflected as a mom over like the different things that her kids had that she didn't have, but there were so many things that were the same. Um, she said she had this quote about kids all wanting to be different from everyone else, but also wanting to be the same and that that's true true. no matter what your background. And so that's kind of the perspective she tried to write her books from is just understanding that commonality in kids of all groups. So I thought that was really neat. Um, so yeah. Oh yeah. Well, speaking of kids, um, 
let me talk about the plot of this book, uh, which does uh, feature kids. So I'm doing this from memory because I've read this book a lot. Um, so Rebecca, chime in if I'm missing something that you think is important. Um, but so basically the book is about this pair of siblings. There's Claudia, um, who is this older sister, and Jamie, who is her younger brother. And they have other siblings too, um, but they barely come into the book. Um, and basically Claudia decides that she's going to run away from home not permanently, but just enough to, like, give her family, like, a little scare and, like, kind of reaffirm her presence as, like, a valuable member of the household because she doesn't feel like she's being appreciated these days. Um, and so uh, she has this plan to run away from home, and she wants to stay in... They're, I think they're living in, like, New Jersey or somewhere like that. They're living in the suburbs of New York City somewhere. Enough where her plan to run away from home involves taking the train into New York City and then uh, staying at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, and she decides to pick her younger brother, um, as an accomplice, uh, to go with her because A, he has a lot of money, which he wins from, uh, cheating at cards. Um. War, to be exact. Yeah. Um, he, his friend and him, like, gamble on the bus to see who can, like, win in war, and he, like, rigs the games, basically, because his friend isn't too bright, he says. Um, and so... Because he's, he's got lots of money, which lots of money means like $25 or something like that, which, A, is a lot of money for kids when you're like, you know, 10 or whatever. But B, it was probably also a lot more money in 1967 when this book was taking place. Um, but uh, the other reason she picks him is because she feels like that he kind of is with it, you know, like he's going to be into this sort of thing and not like uh, rat her out and like ruin the plan. Um, and so... Basically, without a hitch, they run away um, and take all their clothes and hide out in the museum. And um, uh, that's probably about the first third of the book is hiding out in the museum. Um, and it's an art museum. And so, like, during the day, they walk around the museum or sometimes out in the city um, more broadly. And uh, they are, you know, uh, blending in in the museum because there'll be field trips there. So they're like, you know... Uh, blend into the field trip, um, uh, you know, tours. And then at night, they go and hide in the bathrooms and stand on top of the toilets, and so the night watchman doesn't see them or notice them when uh, when they're um, closing up. Um, and they sleep in the beds, like the Victorian beds, which don't aren't as comfortable as they look, apparently. And they're musty. And they're musty because they're, you know, from Victorian times. Um but anyway, uh, once they're in the museum, uh, they start hearing about this little angel sculpture. And this angel sculpture, as Rebecca kind of alluded to earlier, is like maybe from uh, the, the work of uh, Michelangelo, like the famous like uh, Renaissance. Um, well, he was a polyglot too. Um, I've literally never heard that term before. I hope I'm using it right uh, or else I'm going to be... A little bit embarrassed. Be a polyglot yourself. Not as much of a polyglot as uh, Leonardo <laughs> da Vinci, but like you know, he's very talented. Da Vinci talent. or Michelangelo? No, M- Michelangelo was not as much of a polyglot as Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, I see. I see. Um, who invented like the helicopter before there was yeah, technology to support it and all that? Anyway, um, the statue has been donated um, to the museum, and. Uh, there's a whole lot of hubbub, like this may be a lost um, sculpture of Michelangelo. 
Um, and so while they're in the museum, they're like, hey, we have a closer view of this statue than anyone else in the public, um, except presumably the experts examining it. Um, let's try to figure out if this actually is um, a work of Michelangelo. And so they go through a whole bunch of research and try to figure stuff out, uh, and they just can't figure it out. They send an anonymous letter to the museum saying that, like, oh, we found uh, these markings that are on the bottom of the statue that seem to be like a, you know, a Michelangelo hallmark. And the museum kind of writes back and is like, yeah, we already saw that. Thanks. Um, and uh, eventually, and this gets us into the end of the book, uh, they decide, well, let's go to the woman who donated this from her own private collection, which is um, Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. And... Um, the reason why the book is called From the Mixed Up Files of Miss Basil Lee Frankweiler is that the kind of framework of this book is that it's actually Mrs. Basil Lee Frankweiler writing a letter to her attorney um, about these children seeking her out. And so most of the book is like kind of framed through um, her writing to, what's his name again? Oh, what's his name? So this is like... Let me find out. An account that she keeps, because she this woman has all these filing cabinets. This is a rich old woman, her... Husband who... Saxonburg. Saxonburg, her lawyer Saxonburg. Um, her husband has died, and she's just kind of like this, like, kooky old woman who lives um, out in, like, Connecticut or somewhere um, in a, a big house with a, you know, big, you know, personal art collection, but also all these files, which she says is much more valuable to her than the art. And these files are, like, different experiences that she has had or different interesting things that she's clipped from the newspapers or whatever. Um... And so this is something that's from her files, um, is this account of the children coming to visit her. Um, and so they come and visit her, and then that kind of like gets us through to the end of the story. Um, and I don't really want to spoil the end. It's not like a very spoilery type of book. You know, the enjoyment of it comes from like, you know, just experiencing the characters, which are really sharply drawn. Um, but I also don't want to say exactly where it ends. Um, but they You've end up... spoiled every other book. Okay, fine. They end up going and seeking her out. And uh, she reveals that uh, probably not a work of Michelangelo, uh, but it's unknown because she got it from, uh, how do you pronounce it? Bologna? Bologna. Bologna. That's how they keep saying it. You say it bologna like the the lunch meat? The reason why they figured out where to find the filing is because Jamie said bologna. They're like, that's right, bologna. Oh, yeah. So, anyway... um, her filing system is very idiosyncratic, and so she's like, look, I'll tell you the secret of, of this uh, angel statue if uh, she gives them like a period of time, like an hour or something like that, uh, if you can find it in all my files. And so they eventually are able to find it, um, and basically this woman is very amused by these children, and she's the kind of person who seems like she's not amused by lots of people, because you can imagine that most people are just interested in her because of her money or prestige or whatever. But these children have come, like, actually having had an adventure and seeking her out. Um, and so she's very taken by these children while also recognizing, oh, I need to take these kids home because they've been in the newspaper and have been missing. Did you say that Did you say that they find out that it's probably not by Michelangelo? I thought so. No, they find out it is. Oh, it definitely is? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Maybe there's an ambiguity in the book. Um, but... Uh, at any rate, um, what was I going to say? Wait, so Sorry, it is... I threw you off guard, but yeah. The ending of this book was never important to me as much as I read it. 
So it's clearly not something that stuck with me. Um, and it, the, the whole Michelangelo thing is what they would call a MacGuffin, right? Like a plot point where the resolution of the plot is, an, like the resolution of the quest isn't what's important. It's the journey getting there. Um, at any rate, she takes him home in her Rolls Royce with her driver, um, and uh, they kind of get this triumphal entry back at home uh, in this very fancy car, um, and then they are written into her will. Um, and it turns out that Saxonburg is actually their great uncle. And Rebecca is their pointing... grandfather. Grandfather. <laughs> it's a relative. Again, not, as, not important. How many times did you read this? Many times. <laughs> also, though, this is the first time reading it in probably 20 years. Okay. So, um, at any rate... Uh, Rebecca's pointing to the places in the book that show that I am wrong about uh, the things that I've summarized. I'm good at that. I would say that like about 97% of what I just said was accurate, though. Would you say? Sure. Yeah. I'm just okay. kidding. Yes, it is. Uh, at any rate, that's that's it. That's that's the, the book. Did I miss anything else, Rebecca? No, you're Did I miss... polyglot. I think you got it. No, not a polyglot. While I'm on this, you, you talk. I'm going to look up the word polyglot to make okay. sure that I'm actually using it right. So this is my first time reading this book. Um, I knew, I don't know how I didn't read this book. I do want to say, now that I've looked at polyglot, polyglot specifically refers to the ability to speak multiple languages. I don't know that if, if I am alone in uh, stretching its definition into multiple interests, um, or if it's specifically just multiple languages, but um, I may have stretched the definition just a tad. But it's a real word. Well, we know you can speak. Renaissance man, jack of all trades. So that's what I meant. You can speak English and BS, so I'll call you a little polyglot. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, just kidding. Thanks. Um, so I really enjoyed this book. I knew of this book because... Well, I knew of this book because I had seen the title and had seen the um, author's name before, but I just never read it. I don't know why. But anyway... Um, it's I'm, probably because your parents were offended that children would sneak off to the museum. No. This book has been challenged uh, and, and asked to be taken out of school libraries because some people thought that it would inspire children to walk off and run away from their parents to museums, which I say is well, accurate. which is what I was about to say because... Um, not that I was inspired to do that, but... I was. I didn't do it, but I would have done it. I knew this book because of a TV show that I watched um, called Everwood, which I'm probably one of ten people that still remember that this show a Very existed. young Chris Pratt in that yes, show. Yes, it's a great... It's his start. I love this Maybe show. Maybe his best role. But anyway, there is an episode where um, the little sister is inspired to, um, on a field trip, get locked in the museum and spend the night, and it's really scary for her. There were two formative media that I always thought sounded awesome uh, that involved being away from home, you know, kind of illicitly. One was this book where they take a train, which is very important, very formative for me, taking a train mm -hmm. to go run away into a museum. Mm -hmm. I always thought that sounded awesome. And the second one is there's an episode of the animated series Arthur in which they Arthur falls in asleep library. in the library yes. and has to spend the night in the library because he got he fell asleep and he's locked in, um, which I also sound, thought sounded yes. awesome, although he didn't think it was awesome. And in the then show. also when Corroy goes traveling <coughs> in the mall, and oh, I didn't care about the, the mall. Beds, I thought that sounded fun. I would always pick out my bed in the mall. There were no trains anyway. or works of art or books in the mall. So what I liked about this book, 
It is very, very funny. The dialogue, the dialogue, the dialogue is fantastic. I think the brother and sister dynamic is really perfect. The adventure is very appealing, which we're talking about right now. And I, I love at the end, Claudia just can't go home until she feels she is different, that she has changed in some way from this adventure, whether knowing the mystery Um, the answer to the mystery or something else. She's not really sure, but she just can't go home until she feels that she's different in some way. And I thought um, that feeling, especially as a child, is very relatable. Um, It kind of goes back to some of the themes that we talked about in Konigsberg's books overall. And I think the narration of Mrs. Frankweiler is very funny. She's very snarky. Um, she's often talking directly to Saxonberg and be, yes. basically a lot of a lot of times about how much of a bore Saxonberg is. Yes, and how like <laughs> which he probably is. He's a tax attorney, right? <laughs> but I, it's just very apologies funny. to any tax attorneys in our audience. Yeah, and I just think it's fun at the end when they find out that her lawyer the whole time is their grandfather. I think but, that's fun too. It didn't matter to me which kind <laughs> of relative was it was. It was a. It was just the fact that he was related to them. Yeah. Okay. What did you like? Uh, I like the things that you talk about. It is uh, very funny. I also like, it's just a fun concept for a book, and it's executed well. Um, uh, I, I think that, like, there's something, there's something kind of, like, cozy is the wrong word, but there's, like, a... There's a, there's a, there's a characteristic of this book that I think is very appealing which is that, like, everybody that they interact with in a meaningful way, like, all the characters are all kind of, like, articulate and sharp and interested in, like, kind of, uh, like, like thing, things that are interesting, right? Like, they're, everyone's got, like, these little quirks, and they go into the city and, like, walk around and, like, hide out in the museum. Like, there's just something about it that is, like, this isn't always true of good books, like books can be good without this, but this is the kind of book where it's like, I want to go on the, I want to have the experiences that these people have. And I want to talk to the people that they mm-hmm. talk to. Um, and I like that element of the book. And that's always been true. I have read, as, as Rebecca also alluded to, I've read this book quite a bit. I read it a lot when I was a kid. Um, for the, a lot of, you know, I, I hadn't read it probably since I was like 10 or 12 or something was the last time I read it before this time. And I was surprised that it basically still read the same to me as an adult. And the parts of it that appealed to me are the same parts that appeal to me now uh, as did when I was a kid. Um, I also think that, like, and you kind of got into this a little bit, but, like, I think one of the things that's also appealing about the book um, is the character of Claudia and how it's kind of in between the lines and also um, connects to that that quote that you read about... uh, Konigsberg uh, and her writing in general in her whole career, which is the fact that like um, Konigsberg doesn't condescend to children, and that's like a big thing I think for Claudia mm-hmm. is that she does not she doesn't want to be condescended to, like she wants to be taken seriously, and I think that that's like a very deep thing in a lot of children. Not all, not all children, but I think a lot of children truly want to be taken seriously. They don't necessarily want to be adults. Which is what some people, I think, sometimes think about kids who are like this. It's like, you don't want to be adults, but you want adults to take you seriously. To, like, regard you as a peer 
and not in that kind of like literally paternalistic way that adults often do with children, which is to, like obviously children make mistakes and like are naive in certain ways. And this book shows that they're naive in a lot of ways, but like the, um, the adults don't, or, 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 but, but Claudia doesn't want, she doesn't want adults to enter the interaction with her, assuming that they are, um, that, you know, assuming that she, she's a little kid and should be treated like a little kid. And like, there's that whole sequence where they write the letter to the museum owner and they take great pains mm-hmm. not to reveal their identity because they don't want to be taken. They don't want to be recognized as children because they know that that means that they will not be taken seriously. They'll be mm-hmm. humored, but their suggestion about the statue will not actually be entertained. And um, I think one of the things that um, uh, Mrs. Frank Weiler at the end of the book finds so interesting about the kids is that sort of like self-possessed like determination to be um, to be taken seriously. And I think that like maybe I don't want to like justify away my just like misremembering of the book but like I think like for me like one of the things in the plot that was never very interesting to me is whether or not this actually was a work by Michelangelo um but that is like a conduit through which like it becomes like a symbol of I have to be important right I have to be like make something of myself and not in a productive like get a job and be an adult kind of way but I just want to do something that is meaningful and significant, and I want people to take me seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what's driving this whole thing, is that um, Claudia really wants that. Um, Jamie, the her little brother, is like kind of uh, just kind of amused by everything and just like happy to go along for the ride, and that's its own kind of like relatability because it is a very fun ride to go on. But like I think that ultimately the core of the book is Claudia and her just sense at the beginning of the book that people don't take her seriously, you know, she's kind of like uh, taken for granted, I think is the word that she used uh, to describe her feeling in her home. Um, but then once they get out, they want to, they want to do something and not just be like dumb kids who ran off and did something kind of silly. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think that that's kids, kids like to be told that they're important. And sometimes this results in, very silly and repetitive tropes in literature, like the whole, like, oh, you're an orphan, but actually you're, mm-hmm. you know, a wizard or a king or something secretly. Like, some, sometimes that's very silly, but those tropes, like, exist for a reason, you know, because you want to be told that you matter, and you want to be told that, like, oh, you're worth being taken seriously. I think one of the things that's nice about this book is there doesn't need to be a secret revealed about, like, you know, oh, you actually were important, right? It's mm-hmm. it, it gives inherent worth to these kids, not because of what they do, but because of who they are, you know? Like, it doesn't really matter whether or not they resolve the mystery in the end because, and maybe, Rebecca, you tell me if I'm wrong, but <laughs> they are not the ones who break to the public that is a... a no, it's mic- a secret that um, that Claudia gets to keep. Like right. she gets to keep the article herself and, and kind of go to the grave with that. Right. So it doesn't really matter in terms of how they are perceived in the, by the public that they have, you know, they found out that it actually is, you know, uh, uh, a, a sculpture by Michelangelo. 
it matters that they've gone on this journey. Like there's no, there, there, there's, there's no greater significance other than the fact that they were sharp enough and perceptive enough and determined enough to have gone on this journey. And I think that that's really a wonderful sentiment in the book. Yeah. yeah. I didn't dislike anything about this book. I don't think I did either. Um, so let's go back to things I liked. Um, one of the things I didn't realize until I was rereading this and I saw it in the title page or whatever uh, is that uh, Konigsberg did her own illustrations yeah. in this book. And and she used her children as models. Oh, really? Yeah. Who did she use for the model for um, uh, Mrs. Frank Wilder? Maybe because that headmistress, but her head there's is a very picture, large. Yeah, right. That has always struck me. There's a picture at the beginning of this book. This very large head uh, on this woman. Um, at any rate, um, I like that. Sometimes they update pictures in books as they like get published in successive generations. Um, but I always like it when they stick to the original illustrations because it always it makes the book, the book feel like it's from the time that it was published. And I know that that's why they don't sometimes keep those. But I really like it because you look at this and this is like... This is the same era that produced, like, Schoolhouse Rock and, like, the Peanuts cartoons. And, like, you can tell, like, even though it doesn't look like those things, like, the style of illustration, this really scratchy, like, sketch-like look with, like, I don't know if it's, like, ink pen or whatever, but it looks very, like, sketchy. Um, It's very evocative of, like, media from, like, the late 60s, early 70s. And I like that it still has that feel to it. Um, Yeah. So good job, E.L. Uh, I never said her real name, did I? What is her real name? It is Elaine Lobel is what the E.L. stands for. Lobel is her maiden name. Oh, okay. So Elaine. Well, good job, Elaine. Um, Do I dislike anything in this book? I don't know. I really like this book. This is good. Um... Nothing. No notes. I no notes for me either. Two thumbs up. Two. Yep. Well, four. If you count all our thumbs together, there's four thumbs up. Four thumbs up. Um, any other thoughts on this book before we move on? You know, we've uh, for a book. You know, usually we go a little bit longer on books that we like. Uh, we're only at half an hour right now. Well, I think it's hard to like really capture how funny this book is without quoting some of it. But just the, I I think Jamie is hilarious. Like, he's just a riot. That's, the part I always thought was funny when I was a kid is when they find, he finds like a wrapped candy bar on the street. And uh, <laughs> Claudia's like, and Jamie's like, oh yeah, let me eat it. Because they're really saving on money because they know they can't run out of the money. And so they don't buy a lot of things. And they're trying to be as frugal as possible. Um, <laughs> and so he's really excited to find the candy bar, so he's going to eat it. Clyde's like, don't eat it. Probably a drug dealer put drugs in there. He's going to hook like, kids on it. Full of dope. Full of dope. <laughs> um, and then he eats it and, like, pretends to, like, pass out, and she's, like, really freaked out. And then he, like, you know, says, ha, ha. I always thought that part was hilarious when it I was is. a kid. But I think that, like, what I found funnier this time around was just um, just the way that, like, the, the back and forth. Like, it's got a real, like... Um, like screwball, like almost like mm-hmm. classical Hollywood, like Cary Grant, you know, sort of vibe to it where, you know, it's just very quick and sharp. Like, um, 
uh, he Jamie keeps coming around to like let's make this plan more complicated because I love complications. Yes. It's just like a very snappy like thing that <laughs> this kind of circuitous conversation they have to plan out their trip keeps coming back to like oh this is more getting more complicated and he really likes it and. And he's just down for the ride. He's like he's like the treasurer and the hype man at the same time. I feel like yes, um, yeah. It is it is just like funny in a way that's hard to like capture again without reading passages because it's just you know this kind of erudite like sharp writing that like is very the humor is pretty gentle. Like it's not like there's jokes and stuff, but like it's very grounded in like a very precise understanding of who these characters are and, like, what's amusing about these characters. One thing I will say is this book could not have been written today because security in museums is oh my so gosh. different than I couldn't what believe it was how, in this book. Well, I could believe because I've read this book. But, like, thinking as an adult, like, how lax the, yeah. the security is. And it was, was all free. Which, didn't you find out that, like, now the Met is not free, but... It's like a pay-your-own-price yeah. sort of situation. It seems like on the website. I don't know. I've never actually... You know, I've been to New York a few times. Been to MoMA twice. Mm-hmm. Um, never been to and the One Met. time it was free. MoMA, yeah, MoMA has like a free day, yeah. right? But anyway, um, I just... I do think it's funny that it could only be written in an era prior, prior to now. Yeah. Yeah, and like, you know, I'm sure they have like electrical, like surveillance and like... I don't know if there's really like like uh, lasers across the room like in in movies, but mm-hmm. like I imagine that it's that sort of thing. But yeah, like they I, were able to walk around the the museum after it closed and not get caught. Like yeah. it doesn't speak to very high uh, security standards at the Met right. in the 1960s. It was just a cute, fun book. I I thought it was very funny for the most part, but it also taps into. Um, a lot of those anxieties and fears and desires that are very real that you have as a kid, and I think you explained that really well. Thanks. So, you're welcome. After fumbling the, um, <laughs> the plot synopsis. You told me to correct you. No, I'm so. glad you corrected me, just like I'm glad I've corrected my <laughs> use of the word polyglot. Um, That's going to be my, a new insult. Polyglot? For me. Yeah, because it just sounds like, I don't know. No. I'm just going to throw it around in conversation and see what happens. Well, be sure to use it to describe someone who <laughs> speaks multiple languages and not someone who has multiple skills. Um, <coughs> speaking of, actually speaking of nothing, um, it brings us to the end of our talk on this book, right? Yes. So next time, we're back in the 70s, baby, the groovy yes. 70s. Um, and which one were we doing from the we, 1970s? We are going to do... Summer of the Swans by okay. Betsy Byers, which won in 1971. And I will just let you know, I know that there's been several episodes where these are books that I have not read. This is a book that is very near and dear to my heart, and Michael has not read it. I have not so, read it. So, yeah, you thought that my Tune plot for synopsis that. for the book that I had <laughs> read multiple times was, was inaccurate. Just wait until Summer of the Swans. Um, one thing I wanted to get feedback um, on from anybody that is listening and giving us feedback, um, AKA my mom, is if you would be interested in us having like a short segment at the beginning of episodes where we're talking about what we're reading currently, or what? Yeah, because we read we more recommend. things than just these Newbery books. Yeah, um, let especially us know. Rebecca. Well, 
Rebecca's got that 1.5 speed on the Libby app down to a science. literally changing my life in the best way. So if you're interested in that, let us know, and we will um, kind of just maybe like five minutes at the beginning talk about what we're reading now, what you should be reading. Yeah, so you can see how smart books. we are outside of this. Well, that's not what I Some meant. of us are smart when they're not <laughs> summarizing a plot for a book. No, I just mean there's a lot of good books out there, and the more we can talk about good books, the Sometimes more beautiful the too. world can be. Yes. Sometimes there's bad books you get anyway, Thanks for listening. Yes, thanks. Don't forget to email us, newberrychronicles at gmail.com, especially if you want to hear about all the books Rebecca's reading in the Libby app. Shut up. And like the one book a month I read <laughs> in my own time. Get out of here. All right. Thanks again. Bye.